Thanks, Pastor Melody. Appreciate it. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. It's been a couple of weeks. I've been up uh, in the north, in the frozen north. Whew. It was quite warm up there. Everyone's complaining about the heat up north, by the way. And I'm just like, you have no idea. <laughs> uh, and this indeed is the summer. And we're doing Summer in the Psalms. We've been going through all kinds of uh, uh, parts of the, this amazing songbook of the Old Testament. So I want to say thanks to Jim, Pastor Jim Hibden, who uh, filled in a couple of weeks ago. Appreciate it very much. And to Fuzz, where's Fuzz? Fuzz, is he in here? There he is. Thanks, Fuzz. Brought Psalm 19. And just to Josh and Melody, and just everybody, that for being a family, um, you know, we are all, we all have a place here, um, uh, and everyone has a place. And it's just great to see folks stepping forward and stepping up and, uh, with the gifts that God's given them, uh, serving Him and serving one another. So we're in this ser- series, and really it's a lot about um, the human condition um, and the fact that there is a God, a creator God, uh, a personal God, um, and how those two things relate. And we have these amazing songs of the Old Testament that, that demonstrate to us how human beings might communicate uh, in the fullness of what it means to be human and in the awareness that there is a God uh, who is here. Um, this morning, we're going to ask the question, what does it look like to connect with this God to communicate with this God who is uh, in the darkest night, when it is darkest, when life is at its most difficult. When my wife and I were about 30 years old, our second child, Ethan, was born, and we learned something about pain. Uh, birthed by Rona's midwife cousin on August 2nd, 2001, he was wrapped in a soft blanket and brought home to our little single wide trailer in the trailer park where we lived at the time. Uh, The very next day when I was at work, I received a frantic phone call from my wife, Rona, who told me that our son had stopped breathing and that he was being checked out by medics who had managed to clear the the blockage that he was in his airway, uh, but that we would need to take him to hospital and have him checked out. And this was just a small hint of times to come. Uh, For the next three or so years, our beautiful, fragile little baby boy was afflicted with extreme and unexplainable ear and lung infections that regularly sent him into just endless coughing fits, which usually ended in in just vomiting uh, and fear and frequent trips to the ER, often in the very middle of the dead of night. And Rona and I experienced some of our darkest times of our life together during those years, Uh, sleep-deprived beyond our capacity to cope. There were days and nights where it seemed as if we were trapped in a nightmare. We would take it in turns to be with him through the night, administering breathing treatments and clearing up vomit and pushing fluids up against his tiny appetite. We would do this thing where one of us would be in the living room and try and get some sleep on the couch. The other one, we'd put a blanket under the door and try and take, so you wouldn't hear what was happening in the other room and try to get some sleep. And in the morning, whoever was in the living room would come in and open the door in the morning as it got light to see whether, are they sleeping? And often you'd come into this bleary-eyed spouse holding this sick baby. Um, You know, in the dead of night, I would hold my tiny son and I would pray for God to heal him. Or at least, please, God, grace his body with some sleep. And once or twice, it seemed as if God had perhaps answered. uh, But most times, fear and doubt and anger would be my only companion in the darkness until daybreak. Perhaps this is your current experience where you are in life. 
Perhaps you are in the midst of a situation or a season that seems beyond your ability to cope. Loneliness, health concerns, grief and loss, fear of death, your own or your spouse or closest friends or family, an unconquerable sin that just seems to drag you down again and again, and then back and out, the suffering all around us in this weary world in which we live. And even if not at the moment, this doesn't describe you, it's a certainty in light of the world in which we live and these mortal bodies of flesh in which we do our living, that we will all, each one of us, experience painful circumstances that will push us to the limits of our endurance. And even though we say, God will never give you more than you can handle, we know that's not, it's actually a bad interpretation of that passage. Beyond, we are pushed beyond what we can cope with often. And you know, and for those of us on the planet who don't profess to have any kind of faith in this God that we talk about, it's hard enough, but for those of us who do profess faith, these times of suffering are often made worse, compounded by, by the apparent silence of God, the seeming inaction of God. When we cry out to God for relief, and it seems as if an army of angels are just lobbing our prayers back with tennis rackets back on top of our heads... C.S. Lewis, who many of you know about, um, he had a, a really dreadful thing happen to him in his life. Um, he had been a bachelor for most of his life. He lived with his brother, and they had a great time, and he lots of, you know, was doing all his writing and things, but then he connected with this woman, and her name was Joy, and she was an American, and they, became, they were married and, and had a splendid, wonderful, beautiful time in the later part of his life to experience the sublime joy of finding this partner in life. Well, then Joy was stricken with cancer, um, and then the cruelest part of all was that she was, seemed to be coming into a better place with her mission, and then suddenly it absolutely struck her so hard again. And he wrote a book um, from out of that time called A Grief Observed, uh, and he actually didn't put it under his own name. He didn't put it as C.S. Lewis, he put it as N.W. Clark, because he was concerned that the raw honesty of his writing would be problematic for people who had come to trust in him, who was a voice to talk about this wonderful God. And, and he was utterly honest in this book. And he wrote this, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. And if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. How do we connect with God in times of darkness when heaven is silent? So there is a text in the Old Testament that we're going to talk about today, we're going to explore today, that recognizes this reality doesn't shy away from it, and also legitimizes the reality of, of this kind of dark night of the soul in the life of human beings in a world that is filled with the presence of God. And it's Psalm 88. I actually preached this one in a class in seminary one time because the, the teacher said, do something that would be really hard to do. Stretch yourself. And I thought, what's the hardest text I could think of preaching in here? I thought, Psalm 88, because it's unique. It's in the whole of the Psalms. This is a very unique text. 
And it's amazing because all, you know, the Psalms are used a lot in worship and liturgies and most of these books and things, they skip over it. They don't include this one because it is a very hard text. And even in the New Testament, in the New Testament, all kinds of writers there quote Psalms or they, they allude to Psalms. This one's never alluded to or quoted in the New Testament. It is a lament. We've talked a little bit about lament over the summer, but this is a lament of laments. And the word lament is from an old Latin word, which means wailing, moaning, weeping. Uh, and according to some accounts, almost half, almost half the Psalms are lament. This is a real thing. There's actually an entire Old Testament book called Lamentations, where it's about the prophet just bemoaning the destruction of Jerusalem and the forced exile of his people. So lament has kind of a pattern. If we look through pretty much all the other psalms that have this structure of lament, they have three aspects. The first is a complaint in distress. Oh Lord, my enemies surround me without number. And then there's a petition. Oh God, be my rock. And then there's all, generally always an expression of trust and gratitude for rescue. Remember we talked about orientation, disorientation, reorientation. They're, they're very much in that kind of form where, you know, Things are difficult. We cry out to God and rescue comes. Well, Psalm 80 is a notable exception. There's absolutely no real aspect of the final part. No concluding words of praise or assurance at all. In fact, Eugene Peterson in the message renders the very last line of this psalm as, the only friend I have left is darkness. Does that remind you of a song? Yeah, it's personified. He capitalizes darkness, which is kind of sinister, isn't it? It's, a, it's almost personal. There's this darkness. So we're going to read Psalm 88, and then we're going to have some thoughts about what this might mean, that this is in the Bible. And it begins with a little uh, explanation. Many of these are, are probably added later on as people assemble these psalms together. But it gives some ideas about perhaps the author. It says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of Haman the Ezraite. So this is potentially Haman the Ezraite who has written this psalm. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. Spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. 
I borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me, friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And you thought you were coming to church for a little pep talk <laughs> to cheer you up. You know, there is a tremendous dilemma in this psalm which creates a great deal of tension. I think especially perhaps in the modern evangelical American church. Because on the one hand, we hear that God is powerful. Yahweh is Lord. That means Lord of hosts, the most powerful, without end to his power. He is a God of salvation. He is a God who is present. But on the other hand, this powerful God seems unwilling or unable to act. This saving God is apparently not, and for some time now, not coming to the rescue. This present, faithful, wonder-working, righteous God is absent, remote, silent. So it seems that the the Godward side of this equation is, is shrouded in mystery, initially at least. What about the human side? This is the 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 These are the two parts of the Psalms, the the very human side and then the the divine side, the God side. So the human side is all too obvious. It's right there in front of our faces. As I read that, I felt emotion because I'm a human being and I know these words. So in this Psalm, we, we hear the effects of what we might say is unanswered prayer in the midst of suffering. The effects seem obvious. The first one is emotional despair. He said, I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. Second one, physical decline. My eyes are dim with grief. Day and night I cry out to you. It's like sleepless nights and distracted days. No sleep. Day and night, day and night, relentless. It's almost like, you know, in the New Testament it says pray without ceasing. We always think of that as this wonderful, glorious, I pray without ceasing. This is praying without ceasing in the pit. Alienation. There's something about suffering that separates us. So from God and others, but even shunned by companions, friends, and neighbors to the point where The writer says, darkness is my closest friend. Questioning, questioning. Why, Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? And then wrong ideas about God. I think this is so true in these situations to have even leading to this notion that God is responsible directly on purpose for the suffering. You could help me. You do not help me. Maybe you are responsible for this. You, God, are doing this to me? And not positively, but punitively with vengeance, it feels like. I have borne your terrors. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. Then bargaining with God. There's this little section saying, the dead don't worship you. The dead are not subject to your power. The dead do not declare your love and faithfulness. He feels he's heading towards death. I can't worship you if I'm dead. You must spare my life. But I do. Don't let me die. I praise you. Does this resonate with you at all? In times of severe difficulty, have you found yourself either in the past or even right now today, despairing of life, physically depleted, unable to sleep at night or function, 
during the day, alienated, alone, full of desperate questioning, confused about the character of God, making bargains with God. What are we to do when the inevitable season comes upon us? Are these attitudes sinful? Does our pain discredit God or damage our witness? Do we simply put on a happy face and keep on keeping on? I think sometimes we feel the pressure to do so. Um, I remember a, a woman, her name is Bernice, a church, the first church I was ever at. And actually, interestingly enough, during our dark night of the soul, Bernice and her developmentally challenged uh, brother, Smiley, who was always smiling, funnily enough, but that was his nickname, rest came to our rescue when Ethan was born. They, they became like our, our people. I was at work because I had no sick pay. I didn't get any you know, child time to be away. I was either making money when I was there or nothing. We, we wouldn't have any money. And, and they came, did the dishes, and cooked food, and, took, and it was just a beautiful, a beautiful thing. But Bernice, in, in conversations with Rona, and just talking about life, and that she had lost her husband, and she shared with Rona that she felt that when he had passed away, she had really didn't have permission to grieve because of the context of her faith, the praise God he's with Jesus was all that was available to her. She literally did that, stuffed it down. I must be happy because of the truth about who God is. And my husband now is in glory, did not grieve. So what should we do when, in, in response to this? I think the first thing is we must take very seriously the fact that this and other Psalms like it are God's word to us for our daily use. This is God's word. C.S. Lewis in another book, which is actually out there, just so you know, there's some cards in all the books out there now. I finally got around to doing it, which gives some ideas about the books out there. If you want to take a card and maybe pick up one of those books uh, in your favorite local bookstore. There isn't one, I've asked. There's no bookstores here. Isn't that terrible? Barnes & Noble is about it, right? Could someone please open a bookstore? I'm feeling like I don't want to drive to Pasadena to look at books. But C.S. Lewis in his book uh, about the Psalms said, there must be some Christian use to be made of them. Like he's, he's struggling with the fact that people just avoid these Psalms. I mean, I've, I've literally, in, in preparing a service, I have, I have cut bits out of Psalms because I didn't want to say, have, say those words and have people say those words. So I take these, you know, painful, angry, desperate things out of them. And he said, there must be some Christian use to be made of them if we believe that all Holy Scripture is the Word of God. So we must take seriously that this is part of the word of God. Use these texts that we can pray the words of scripture. We can take them for ourselves. They are a gift to us. The second thing is we must accept the reality of a silent God, a God of mystery. We don't really think about that much. There's different streams of Christianity, and some of them are very good at, at transcendence, that the God who is holy and high above, and others are really good at the God who is intimate and close, like a best friend around the campfire. Um, and both things are really, really important. We think about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there is the fact, as Fuzz actually mentioned, it's funny, I listened to your message, dude, and I was just like, oh, we're kind of preaching the same message. Maybe we really need to hear it again, right? That God is nothing like us, really. We are made in his image, but God is spirit. 
God is unapproachable. He is holy. He is perfect. He is utterly other than. Unreachable, undiscoverable, unknowable, unrelatable. And therefore, very often, we will shout our complaints out into the vast heavens and it will seem as if our words are falling on deaf ears. But, as Fuzz shared with us, I was just so happy and like, wow, we're praying to the same Lord of the Scriptures, man. There is a voice on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we call out in sorrow, Jesus calls out in unison with us, in solidarity with us. He is always a suffering as well as an exalted savior. When we stretch our hands to God in desperation, his wounded hands are held out alongside ours. He is with us. He is with us, God with us, Emmanuel, and actually especially so in our suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's another man acquainted with suffering, was a pastor during World War II, was part of a plot to uh, take care of Adolf Hitler, and it was discovered, and he was arrested, and he spent some time in a concentration camp. Finally, he was in a prison, and a couple of weeks before the liberation of that prison, they hung him in the courtyard. They murdered him. And he wrote a book about the Psalms also, which is also out there. Uh, and he said this, there are no theoretical answers in the Psalms to all these questions. There are no theoretical answers in the Psalms to all these questions. As there are no theoretical questions, answers in the New Testament, the only real answer is Jesus Christ. The only real answer is the living person of Jesus Christ. And I think the American church seems to spend way more time in the realm of the gospel of glory than the gospel of the cross, the gospel of suffering but it is at the heart of reality and creation. So what should we be and do as the people of God here at New Song Church? If we are people who want to follow Jesus, right? Love people, what does it mean to do good? Well, there's something about this reality of the nature of what the church is, and it's that we are the body of Christ. We are the body of of Christ, and he speaks or desires to speak and act through us. So to connect with this Jesus in empathy and solidarity, whose hands are with us, whose voice cries out with us, we must do that with one another. And no one here should ever feel like they have no friend with whom to share their deepest sorrows and griefs. Who has been or is there for you now? And this is not a theoretical question. It is a question that I hope you have an answer to, a face, a name. Who is that person with you now? You know, these psalms, the whole psalm book speaks of human experience running the whole way from exultant joy to the deepest of sorrow. And I think it reflects the people of God, in fact, all of humankind, these experiences of ourselves, of God and others and creation are present here all the time in, in our midst and we're all at maybe different places. Psalm 88 tells of a time of doubt and fear, of faith hanging by its fingernails. But if you read on, 
There's Psalm 89, interestingly enough, written by a man by the name of Ethan, which I just noticed recently, my son's name. And, uh, you know, when I was studying this back in school, and I was sharing one with the other students about doing Psalm 88, he wisely said to me, don't forget about Psalm 89. Uh, And not just because they're, you know, they come one after the other, but also if you kind of read up on it a little bit, there's some idea that these are actually meant to be paired together. Um, and, it's, and then funnily enough, on um, Tuesday, we had our staff meeting, and what we do at every staff meeting is we read the scripture that's going to be coming up next Sunday, because I believe the Bible is best interpreted and understood in a community. So that's what we do. And uh, Marissa, who does our early childhood and a multitude of other things around here that you're probably not even aware of, she is amazing, she said, what does Psalm 89 say? And I was like, oh yeah, funny you should mention that. Here's how it starts. It says, I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. And it almost feels like there's a conversation between these these two psalms, but they are not separate. They are together. And I think sometimes we, when we find ourselves in a place of Psalm 88, um, we hope that there are in close proximity to us people who are, are Psalm 89 people perhaps. Psalm 88 people do need Psalm 89 people Because when Psalm 88 people say that all is darkness, Psalm 89 people remind us the darkness will not last forever. Psalm 88 people feel that the grave has the final word. Psalm 89 people proclaim that God's faithfulness reaches even into death. He has conquered death. But here's what is every bit as true, because I can leave it there. I think Psalm 89 people need Psalm 88 people. The honesty, the reality because that's actually where our empathy and our love finds its most powerful point of contact with other people. When we're willing to set aside statements that can appear on Hallmark cards, perhaps, these things are true, right? We need people in our lives who are showing their genuine experience of being human to us. We need them every bit as much as they might need me with some words of hope and comfort. I'm going to invite the worship team up because we're going to sing a song now which is really a lament. And, you know, earlier I was saying that, like, reading a psalm, like, if if we were to do, like, hey, we're at church today and we have a practice of reading through the psalms, and we got to Psalm uh, 87 last week, perhaps, and then... I can't remember what that one says, but I'm sure it's not as dark as Psalm 88, right? And I'm like, oh, next week's Psalm 88. I wonder if they'll notice if we just skip that one. Because in a room like this of people, not everyone in the room is in that place that they, I feel maybe awkward putting those words in someone's mouth for whom life right now is actually going quite well. And here's, here's the words of the song we're about to sing together. Lost in an endless sea, in the wreckage of my hopes and broken dreams, far from where I began, have you left me here? Is this part of your plan? 
And sometimes, you know, I, 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 I'm going to, like, the, the nature of this is you going to sing, all sing these words, right? But here's the point in light of the body of Christ. Some of us are in this exact place. So when we sing these words, we may not be personally uh, expressing right now our current experience, but we are expressing solidarity with our brother or sister who is weeping through this song because it's expressing so truly what is true about them. And if not in this room, around the world, we can sing lament on behalf of our brothers and sisters around the world for whom life seems like it is ended, it is over, it is done. We sing with solidarity for them in the place where they sit in their ashes and tears and anguish and sorrow. There is always a place for lament, and, and I, I don't want this place to become this dark, depressing place, but I want us to recognize the reality of what it means to be human beings, and we can all enter into that on behalf of our brothers and sisters when we have those moments in our times together. So we're going to sing this song, and if, even if you, you're not feeling particularly musical, let your heart express solidarity with those that you know right now or you don't know who are suffering. And if you're in that place, I, I pray, I hope and pray that this song is something that you can give voice to the tension, the dynamic of living in a world where we are so fully human with all that that means and in a world where we have um, a hope that is yet to be fully realized in a God who made us, who loves us, and who has given his life for us. Let's sing together. Oh, wow. It's a good day. We are not alone. We are not alone. That's just really what we hope, isn't it? You know, that contrary to, I guess it's the patterns of this world towards competition um, and isolation and accumulation, consumption, all these shuns, you know, we're called to relation, <laughs> communion. That's what we're doing here with this. This is another way we can respond in song. We respond in a physical, tangible act with a little piece of what we think may be bread. It's uh, also, this is kind of finicky, so please don't, be, please don't be shy about asking a neighbor to help you open the top part, which is separate from the other part, because I struggle with these things sometimes. But So if you need help, just ask someone, can you open this little thing for me, because it's really... Difficult, but like we have this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice. Um, and I was just reading again in 1 Corinthians 11 in preparation for this morning, this passage, this, this writing, the thing that Paul says, you know, and, and sometimes we just get so used to saying these words over and over again. And just take a fresh look in the context of what we've been talking about. Like what's happening here when Jesus first did this? What does that mean for what we've just been thinking about? He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, when on the night he was betrayed... You know, he went to the garden and he wept so hard that he bled from his pores and his disciples fell asleep. He took bread and when he gave him thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There's hope. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim his death, the, the forgiveness that comes by it, but also the reality of the death that he dies the suffering Savior who is in solidarity with us. But then he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves then and so eat. So for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning what? Discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself or herself. Discerning the body. So what we're doing here is that the body of Christ broken for us and the blood poured out for us, but also the body of Christ, these brothers and sisters with whom we have this solidarity. And, and so we take these this morning in that light. And we do this to express our solidarity with Christ who expressed his solidarity with us even though we were sinners. And then we express our solidarity with one another in the very human condition that we find ourselves. We take the bread in his name. Also remembering when Jesus did this, he said, you know, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until I drink with you anew in my kingdom. That's still to come. We are in the now. Yes, we have this forgiveness, this kingdom, this presence, but also not yet. So we drink this in anticipation of the day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or dying, but he is bold, he says, I am making all things new. We thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Father, uh, we sit here today known by you and fully loved by you. And your, our sorrow and our doubt and our fear doesn't diminish in any way your love for us our standing in this community or in this world. We are dearly beloved children of God. And you have accomplished that. You are accomplishing that. You will accomplish that. We offer our lives to you again. With the breath that you have given us, we proclaim our praises to you together as one people. For we pray in the amazing name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen. amen. Let's sing together. Worship.